listening to the Talking Golf Podcast. To hear future episodes, remember to click subscribe in your favorite podcast directory. On the tee from the USA, Jordan Speed. Welcome to Talking Golf with me, Hugh Marr. Golf as we know it is facing challenging times with club memberships dropping and the game struggling to attract new participants. Golf is also facing something of an image problem. To find out more about how the RNA is leading the way in responding to these challenges, we welcome Martin Slumbers, Chief Executive of the RNA. Good afternoon, Martin. Welcome to the podcast. We're speaking to you live today from the best office in golf, the Royal and Ancient Clubhouse. How's St Andrews looking today? Um, it's what I think Scots call a Greek day. It's, uh, <laughs> it's cold. It's a bit, bit uh, misty. Um, it's windy. Um, but I tell you what, the uh, the old course is full, and people are queuing to get up on the the first tee. So uh, I'm glad, but I'm glad I'm sitting in my office. Yeah, I don't blame you. There, are, you'll have plenty more good days to play out there. <laughs> Now, five years ago, you retired from your career in uh, the financial world with the intention of playing more golf and taking the Amateur Seniors Tour by storm. Fast forward, I think it was 12 months from there, you're now effectively running the game worldwide. How on earth did that happen? <laughs> uh, sometimes I ask myself that, actually, Hugh. <laughs> but I mean, I seem to remember that you were quite encouraging for me to, to stop work and play golf full time. Um, at, at the time and uh, you know I, I, I think if I look back uh, on sort of my work career I mean I loved playing golf but work was my was my driver and uh, um, I was very keen to have one go at trying to play golf all the time and see uh, see if I could improve um, but I soon found that uh, I missed being at work um, and playing golf every day um, fulfilled me in many ways, but I, I, I missed out on the, the cut and thrust of being at work. So when the opportunity came up to interview for uh, this role, it was something that, uh, you know, I have to admit, I didn't think uh, I had a chance in hell of getting it. And I remember talking to you about it at that point. And, uh, you know, um, I think the club and the way the, the company, the board here recruited and looked to recruit uh, Peter's successor was, uh, was, was, was very forward-thinking and they, they looked for what you would uh, sort of think about the, the sort of the golf business and uh, the sports business, but they were also very keen to um, have someone from the business world. Um, and I think uh, I've, I've long said it's better to be lucky than clever. And I think I was in the right place at the right time. And, uh, you know, now I combine my love of playing golf with uh, a, a really good commercial business and a, a real interest in uh, trying to help this wonderful sport uh, move into the next generation. And I mean, I think you've come into the business at a very interesting time, a very challenging time in that, that a lot of the things that you and I love about the game of golf are potentially not appealing for the computer or the internet generation who 
need more, I guess, more immediate uh, satisfaction. What what do you see are the biggest challenges that you're facing uh, in the role? And were those challenges ones that you'd anticipated coming into the job? Or have these sort of come out of the woodwork over the course of the last, I think it's nearly four years you've been in, in position now, isn't it? Well, no, I'm just starting my third year. So I okay. had six months um, parallel. That's right. You, um, you worked, with, uh, worked with Peter, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So no, I'm just starting my third year. I mean, I, I think when, I, when I've looked at, uh, at, at my role, I mean, there's the classic way of looking at it. We, you know, we have responsibility for the, the rules and the governance of the game. But, you know, I tell you what, what's fascinating about um, the experience I've had in the last three years is that the outside in view of um, organizations like the RNA um, is very different than when you're on the inside. And there's some fantastically talented people who are really dedicated in experience. So, the, when it, and that no, no more so than in the rural side. And, and I sort of found that as I came in that I clearly need to be involved in that side, but it's, it's run extremely well. And I didn't feel that's where I can add value. Um, so I, I, I get involved and I work with that, but it's very much I take lead it to take guidance from David Rickman, who uh, runs all that um, and does a fantastic job. And then the, the, the open is something that um, I felt very strongly about coming into the into the role, um, and you know it's a it is a nerve tingling experience being involved in the in the open. You've got from the the whole commercial side of it, which is you know, as, as you would expect, um, something that I feel comfortable with and, and I enjoy. But deep down, I, I love watching golf and I love um, the, the golf aspect of it. And being able to have a strong say on how do we create this platform for the very best golfers in the world to show us how good they are has been very rewarding over the last two years. Very scary, um, but very rewarding. And and I do think about it like that, Hugh. I think my job on the Open and the team here is, is to really give these guys, and now we look after the Women's British Open, the ladies, yep. the platform to show us how good they are. Um, it's not about tricking up golf courses or making it impossible. I want a fair test where if you play the way the hole was designed to be played with the talent they have, they can score. And, and I find that deeply um, satisfying and uh, I could spend pretty much my whole year doing that. But the third thing that I felt very strongly about was I think the RNA has a, future, has a responsibility to the future of the game. We have historically been a provider of significant financial support um, all the way around the world, but I felt we needed to provide more active support and more leadership on how we think the sport needs to develop. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that's really taken up a lot of my time. In a job like mine, you get caught into sort of explaining in three or four words what you do. And, um, you know, I was asked fairly early on my time here, and they said, well, a journalist asked me, what do you want your legacy to be? Which uh, I sort of said, well, I've only just joined, so it's a bit difficult. <laughs> but I kind, of, I kind of view my role as to do whatever we can to make sure that golf is thriving 50 years from now. And absolutely so agree. Absolutely agree. This and this, this to me is one of the the you, you've taken on this very. It's, it's almost three or four roles in one, in that you've got the 
what many would view as the biggest golf tournament in the world, which without anyone's contribution, it's still going to be here in 50 years' time. But the leisure side of the game, the recreational side of the game, if it carries on in decline the way it has for the last 15 years, that's going to become a really big, big, big problem for the game of golf. Oh, absolutely. I mean, let's, 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 let's you know, be, be honest about it. You know, 99% of the people who, who, who play golf play it for love, not for money. Absolutely. And, and the 1% who do play it for money um, earn good money because the other 99% are consuming the product and therefore sponsors and TV absolutely. wants to be involved. I mean, and go, I remember having these when you were going through the, your recruitment process, these massive conversations with you about the Open Championship, and that was clearly something that really excited you about the role. How much of the growing of the game did you think the role would entail back then versus how much it entails now? I think uh, as I came into the role, I, I, I thought it was going to be a fairly small piece of my job. During the six months I had um, shadowing and learning from Peter, it sort of became very clear to me that the RNA is in a un probably a unique position in the world to take a leadership position on how the game should develop. I mean, there are a lot of people who are far more knowledgeable than I am about how the game should be played and how it should be uh, administered. But I have the I have to think I have a responsibility to the game to be able to use the RNA's history and um, ability to influence to be able to try and lead and yep. then um, let, let the, the people who really know how the detail works make it happen. And I think that leadership is about our game changing. And, you know, as I, as I prepared to come here, I mean, I've been very lucky and I've openly said, you know, I spent most of my golfing life and I've played since I was a, a young man or a young boy. Um, I took more from the game than I put back in. And I enjoyed my club life. And as you know, I, yeah. I love team golf. I love competitive golf. Mm -hmm. But as I prepared for this, you realize how many people are involved in trying to get this game to grow yeah. um, or running it day to day. And I, I felt that more and more that the RNA has a responsibility to step up and um, provide the leadership for you know, these uh, people to really do, do what they do really well and, and drive the game forward. So it's become a quarter of my, my time. That's exciting. And actually, it's stressful at times, but I really enjoy it. So how do you, let's, let, let, let's focus a little bit more on the growing side of the game. What, what are the challenges that you think need to be broken down in priority? How do we make this game more appealing to non-golfers? Because therein lies the challenge just now, that it's club members almost, we don't need to worry about them. They're always going to be club members. It's how we continue to fill golf clubs, how we continue to stimulate people to even think about taking up the game. What, what, what do we need to change so that it's more appealing for those people? Well, I think there is, let's start off by saying, are, are there people out there who could get interested in golf? And, Absolutely. You know, Keith, Keith Pelley commissioned some, some research around, let's look at golf in its more broadest sense in the UK. Instead of those who are just club members, let's look at it on those who consume golf, right, you know, driving ranges, pitch and putts, computer simulators. I spent time in Korea, Hugh. The number of places that have computer simulators full yes. of young people. And when you put all that together, there's 9 million people, over 9 million 
adults and another just under 2 million of juniors who consume our game. So how do we get them more to sort of advance and get, you know, in, aspire to be a little bit better or, or play more or get more involved? So I, I think there's absolutely a market for it. But what I really think we have to do to change is we have to modernize the game and we have to make it relevant to today's society. And we have a, we have a game that often is looking backwards rather than forwards. But that's something that a lot of people like about the game, the traditions, the values, the, the history that comes with it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. But you know, if we are going to have a game 25, 50 years from now, we need to be bringing in you know, the younger generation to be able to be them playing and working in golf clubs in the future. And you know, I, look, I look at it, you know, I'd ask the question the other way and sort of say, if you look at clubs, do they offer, what product are they offering? And Absolute, are they offering a absolutely. product that people want to buy? And, and, and ultimately, it, do they even have a role in, in 100 years' time? Are, are golf clubs, as they exist and function just now, are, do they have a role in the game of golf? I'm not 100% sure they do. They're going to have to fundamentally change to, to adapt to the demands of however many people come into the game. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I did. Um, I, I put a slide together for um, a speech I did uh, at, to the all-party parliamentary group in, on golf in, in Westminster. And the mm -hmm. last slide it was, is golf undervalued here in GB&I? And I looked at it from three lenses. I said, firstly, economics. Well, golf um, delivers two two billion pounds a year to GDP. It pays a billion pounds of tax every year. It employs just shy of 100,000 people um, in this country. Yeah, it's a pretty serious piece of um, economic value. Yeah. Are we world-class? Well, 25% of the top 20 in the world come from GB&I. There are not many sports that we have um, on the male side, not many sports in this country where we can say that it's, it's as good as that. If any. And then you, then you put the Open on top as one of the great sporting events. Um, and the Ryder Cup and the Solheim Cup, you know, th th this, this sport is world class. And, and it also, then I looked at it in the lens of societal value. And I think golf has a very large part to play in the health agenda as we go forward. I think it has a significant role to play in environmental matters that are going to become part and parcel of our, of our daily life. Forget about being in the golf business. Yep, correct. Um, so... I think, as including that, I think clubs have a massive role to play here. I think that they, they, they create an environment that firstly manages golf courses, but also they create social connections with people. But the world that, you know... Which, is, but, which is becoming increasingly undervalued, these social yeah. connections. I, I learned as a, as a very young man, as a kid... I learned to interact with adults through playing the game of golf. And I can categorically say that across my, I don't know, I guess it's nearly 20 years of working in junior programs at, at sort of regional and national level, there's really very few instances where the game of golf hasn't been positive for these young men and women. That environment I, I, that the golf club offers is so crucial to me in, in just the, the growth of the nation's health. Yeah, and, and I would agree with that. I, I think people consume club life differently but I think clubs have a massive role to play here. But the trick is how do we get 
the next generation to come through the door and experience it. That's when you get to my mind about the product that's being offered. Um, and I've been talking a lot recently about the importance of getting more women to play golf. There's some, there's some basic, as you'd expect from me, some sort of basic commercial economics here. Um, if you look at the UK, 14% of club members are women, um, compared to, and it's smaller in Scotland, um, compared to countries on the continent where the game's growing, which are in the high 20s, 30s. Yes. Now, that's important, but the next bit that's even more important, 59% of children play with their mother, and only 18% play with their other partner. So wow. you look at this just from a purely economic point of view. If, you can get, if we can get more women to join golf clubs and be part of it, more children will come, and the children will follow by definition. And that's what I really mean about the product. How do we have a product that families want to, to buy into. And forget about the golf. You know, how many golf clubs do you walk into where you know, it's free to get on, you know, on the internet, you can pick up your Wi-Fi, yeah. that you can sit there and use internet whenever you want to. You know, we, we live in a world, I mean, you know, even at um, your age, Hugh, you spend more time on technology than, um, than uh, 15, 20 years ago. 100%, and yeah. I look at 10-year-old kids today, they're not going to want to come into any place that they can't get on Wi-Fi and, and, and gauge with their friends. And yet 90% um, of golf clubs are telling you that you have to put your phone away. Correct. So I, I, I think there is, when I, when I, I think the family golf, um, more women to play is a really important part of this modernization agenda. And we did, there's some survey, you'd, be find, you'd find it fascinating, Hugh, that the question was asked to 25 to 40-year-old women, what do you want from a golf club? And they, they, there's a whole series of things. But the ones that really stick out to me were um, a course that they could play in an hour and a quarter to an hour and a half. So that really fits in with my view, or our view, around the importance of nine-hole golf. Yeah, and a short nine-hole golf. golf. Yeah, I mean, you and I have talked about, you know, golf, for 25 years, we've golf um, architecture has been driven by golf e good equals hard. Yes. Um, you know, we need to get back to good equals fun. 100%. Um, Absolutely. And, completely agree. You know, I think, I think golf courses are just, there's too much of an obsession about hard. So hour and a, hour and a quarter to an hour and a half. Um, a crash. Well, if you want a young professional family to, uh, to, for, to play in the week, you know, childcare is a critical part of this. Um, fit, and the third was a fitness area, not with machines and everything, but where they can, you know, where Pilates or yoga or something like that can be, can be done. And then a proper coffee machine. <laughs> and, uh, one of and, my, and, now you've got one of my real passions, Martin. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And, and if you think about it, as you think about modern Hugh in that sense, Walk in, and, and I'm beginning to do this more and more. Look, I walk into a golf club with the lens of what, what are you doing? What, what's your policy around Wi-Fi and the internet? You know, what have you and got? Do, and does it work? Does it work? Is it fast enough? Yep. Um, because sadly, we we all want speed now. Um, do, do do is there a nine-hole option or a six-hole option to the course design? Yep. Um, do you, what, who's got childcare facilities? Who's got an area for fitness? 
Um, and I also look around and say, who's got a proper coffee machine? That, if we're going to modernize the game and make it more family-orientated, because even in this society where time is precious, I think actually if you phrase it differently and you talk to the sort of the socioeconomic advisors out there, what they're really saying is family. People want to spend time with their family, with their wife, with their husband, with their children, and do it together. More than maybe when I was learning. It's it's interesting you say that because in my travels around Europe and the world coaching, the Northern European countries particularly, that family thing appears to be much, much stronger than it is in the UK. So go to a golf course in... Sweden, for example, on a Sunday afternoon in the summer, you'll see families playing. And you won't just see mother and father and children. You'll see three generations of families playing golf together. It's the same driving around Holland when you when you look at families out on their bikes or families playing tennis together. Do you think that that family network and the family values is as strong in this country? I, I, I think it is. I mean, um you know, I, I love going to rugby, as you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you go and watch the rugby and uh, you see... Um, I used to go to Harlequins on a Friday night and we'd go as a family and you'd see, you know, lots of... Um, you know, mothers would have brought their children to it and dads came from work after, after work and came down and had a good evening. Um, when my children were learning to play cricket, you know, Friday night was, was club night and... All the families used to come and the children would play cricket and the men would relax and, 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 and the women were... And it was just... It was a family um, environment. And if I look back... I mean, I'm fortunate to live here in Scotland and, you know, the game of golf here in Scotland was the game of the people. Mm-hmm. That's how it started. Yep. Um, I think we need to go back to it being a game of the people and the people is open and accessible to everyone. Yeah, I think there is a huge opportunity. And the Golf Active study tells you that. Mm. Um, tells you, you know, there were three, there's three, out of that 9 million, there are 3.3 million women who uh, have active involvement in that. So, you know, I think it's really important for clubs who want to grow. Some don't want to grow, Hugh. But those who want to grow and, and, and change and become modern, I think embracing family life will make a massive difference. And I think one of the things that when you look at the at how the, your traditional club members would react or your traditional golfers would react, they may feel that we're that this new movement is trying to change their part of the game. I don't see that being the case at all. We're not trying to change the traditional end of the market because that's all, there's always going to be someone who wants to be part of that. But we have to offer more options in different parts of the market. At a, oh, I, an old I school private club, they don't need to change. If it's a nice course and they've got and it's a good club, they're probably going to be okay for members. Yeah, and, and I think um, you know, in classic sense, I mean, I think you have to segment the market. I mean, there are certain clubs that will be here a hundred years from now, whatever happens. There are others that are, you know, very well managed and tight um, in their cost basis, and they're fine. Um, but there is a huge swathe of golf clubs that are having a hard time and we have not been able to grow membership for the last, I don't know, 10, nearly 10 years probably. 
I'm, I'm incredibly heartened as I go around that a large percentage of those clubs are looking for help and advice about how yes, to change. They if they go down this, the route that, we, you know, that you and I have just been talking about, I think they will be thriving in the, uh, in the 10 to 20 years from now. Um, and people will look back and say, well, what, what, was, what was the big deal about changing that? <laughs> Yeah, because we're not actually talking about a lot of the ideas you've discussed don't require huge financial investment. They just require a different way of thinking and, and starting to approach the game of golf from a fundamentally different place. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, I think professional golf and, uh, and has been fantastic. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned if I, if I, look, at, if I look at golf that the, the be-all and end-all of, of, a, of a young man or woman starting out is to become a professional. I think actually that they need to, we, we need to put a little bit more influence on them getting to enjoy the game and have fun. And I think coaches, um, and, I, and you know, I, I know you've done a lot to, to, to bring people up to a level where they can enjoy it more. This is a difficult game. And if you invest in time with a, a professional coach who can make that easier. But don't do it in the context of you're going to become the next yes. Faldo. There was far too much in sort of, I feel, in the last 20 years of trying to find the, the next Nick. Or, and, and there's some wonderful guys come through, but the vast majority of people need to have coaching in an environment which allows them to go and play with their friends or their family and have fun. Well, I mean, that's one of the great sadnesses, I think, of a sp or let's build a, a new Nick Faldo approach, that a lot of the kids, or I mean, not kids now, young men, that I've been involved with over the course of the last 15 or 20 years who haven't made it at the very top of the game, they've not then decided to go into the PGA routes or the majority of them aren't even playing the game anymore. And... That to me is, I'm not sure who's responsible for that. Ultimately, it's that you have these people that have devoted huge chunks of their life to becoming good at something and they don't even play anymore. I find that very upsetting. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's an, an item that is um, increasingly on, on our agenda when we're looking at amateur status because you're, you're absolutely right. There's a large percentage who turn professional every year. Yep. The reality is there's only a small number in the world who play for money every week and make a living. Mm -hmm. And as a game, we need to, when, when, when uh, reality hits, and I, you know, I'm, I'm all for letting people pursue their dreams. I mean, I was lucky enough in my chosen career, I pursued my dreams and people must do that. Life sometimes has a habit of saying, well, you're not good enough mm. or you're not going to make a living. And I think we need to do some work to make that easier for those people to come back and remember why they started playing golf in the first place. Yeah. Which is actually, they love the social side, they love the competitive side, and um, get them to fall back in love with golf again. And understand the, that there are different ways to earn a living within the game. And the game needs these people, the game needs PGA professionals, it needs club managers, it needs greenkeepers, they're fundamental to the growth of the game. But it does seem that once decided oh, unfortunately I'm not going to make it so I'm going to go and I don't know work in media or work in financial world not that that's a bad career choice but they seem to just walk <laughs> away and that's them for good yeah. or, in, or, in, yeah. or they maybe pick it up again when the kids are grown up at 
45. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely right. And I think that is another part of trying to modernize the game and make it. Um, I think there is huge value in having this differentiation between amateur and professional, but it's the way back from professional and clubs being willing and open for, to, to yes. bring them, them back, I think is important. I, I seem to remember maybe, and I'm getting to an age now, but I, my memory is not as good as it was from 40 years ago, but when I was learning, there were, in the clubs that I played at, there was um, quite a number of um, what appeared to be slightly older people, men and women playing, more men, mm. who were extremely good. Mm -hmm. um, and they were role models for me when I was learning. Probably more a role model than the professional golfer in those days. So, I mean, you know, I that, wanted to now you mention it, that was entirely my experience. There were half a dozen mem older members of the club who had a proper background in high-level amateur golf, and they were the first people you aspired to. Yeah, and, and, and I think we've, we've, we've sort of lost that generation. Um, we don't have enough, you know, maybe it's because I'm just now one of the old boys, but I don't, I, I don't see we have enough of those in the, in the clubs that provide the role models. I mean, the reality is most of the youngsters who are coming up are never going to play with the top European Tour pros or the yeah. PGA Tour pros. But they might well play with somebody who's played, um, you know, played, played for England, played for Scotland, played mm -hmm. Walker Cup, mm -hmm. you know, won the amateur, those sorts of things. And, you know, I can remember playing a in my 20s even at West Sussex and West Sussex Golf Club used to have a brilliant winter foursomes tournament and there would be at least two ex-Walker Cup and ex-Curtis Cup players in there mm -hmm. and do you know what I used to always want to be drawn against them because that's how you you learn and Sunningdale foursomes being probably one of the few remaining events like that where pros and amateurs of decent standard can play together I think Sunningdale foursomes um, when you really get to understand what it is, is a real testament of what the modern game should look like. Mm. You, you can have mixed teams, you can have all women teams, all male teams, can't you? Amateurs, pros, um, all on the same golf course. Yep. It doesn't matter and what approach I take to that event, I always end up getting beaten in the first round. So <laughs> maybe, maybe you and I can try it one year, Martin. <laughs> maybe you need to take some lessons here. Ah, uh, well... I might be doing that just now. Ah, okay. So let's let's go a little wild. We're now in 2023. What does the perfect golf club look like? What does it offer? If you walk into one of the, aside from a fantastic coffee machine, you walk into a golf <laughs> club. What would you like to see? How would you and how would it differ from the sort of traditional members club that we have today? It would have a balance of age groups, it would have a balance of um, diversity, it would be relaxed, um, it could have its formal area if it wishes, but the majority of the club would be relaxed and casual, would have health and fitness as part of that, uh, as part of its product offering. I think that's the sort of club that I, I could see 10 years from now. And that would be, from what you're describing, that to me sounds like you have something, it's, it's more like 
community centre is the wrong term, but this, it would be the centre of the community, that's a better way of putting it. I mean, Scotland's a great example of this, where a lot of villages have their own course. That The more you can make that the epicentre of village life or town life, the more the game will thrive and grow. Yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely right. I remember as a, a young boy, I think probably the first time I played on a golf course, I was probably about seven or eight, and uh, we'd been on holiday in the, the New Forest, and uh, we'd found, a, I always remember it, I think i still got it, a seven iron, uh, old seven iron with a red plastic grip. Um, and it was the only club uh, we played with. And we went on holiday to Scotland, and my father took my brother and I at six in the morning. And the three of us played, we just had a bit of fun. We probably only had about five clubs between us. It's a memory I still have, and you know, donkey's years later. And I think that's that's really important. I think if we can do that, then clubs can be part of the way that you live your life. Yeah. Um, and I think that would be Im- Im- important. And I mean, I grew up a very similar Braemar Golf Club, which I think is the highest eighteen-hole course in the uh, in the UK. That it's a holiday golf course, and it's. It was at the time the centre of village life. You'd you could rock up with five clubs. You could show up with fourteen clubs, an electric trolley. It, everyone was welcome, and it was a safe environment to play. So many golf clubs historically just don't feel like a place outsiders are welcome. I think you know if you go back that that if if you want a families to be there, it's got to be a very open environment where it's not just families are tolerated. They're part of the ethos. Yeah, and. You know, I think there is horses for courses, and I think there is a way of being able to accommodate that. I would say, let me just talk about the, the I said fitness area, Hugh, because, you know, we've historically talked about golf as a game. Yeah. Well, if I look at, you know, you look at the, um, not just uh, the, the tour professionals on the uh, LPGA, LET, PGA Tour, European Tour, but look at the, the amateurs that we see in our events. Mm. This is... These are these are athletes now. Yeah, you know I think Tiger Woods made was probably the start. You know the man who changed that whole game and made it an athletic game. Mm. And you know in the years I've known you, the athleticism and, and and physical ability has become an increasing part of your coaching. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know I think we we the future is if we can also have clubs think view start to run this as a sport and a sport um, where people have the option to, do, um, to eat healthily, to work out in a gym. Um, so it becomes a destination, so it becomes part of your life. And I don't mean a country club, um, but I think if you go to a, a 22-year-old uh, professional today, a professional person today out in, in trying to make their living yeah. um, in the world of commerce, they, they, they want to do on their Saturday, they want to do something healthy, they want to see their friends, they want to spend a bit of time with uh, some of them with their you know, partners or um, some of them with children. And the golf club can be the place where you go to do all of that. Yeah, it, can, than, it can offer you everything. You just go to play golf. Yeah. Um, and I, I think if I'm looking forward to you know, your 2023, I think that's the type of club I could see my boys would want to be members of. I totally agree. So let's let's take this in a slightly different direction now. That I think there's, based on what we've discussed, the future for golf, if it's handled and managed correctly, is quite rosy. Where do the other 
challenges for the game lie? Because for me, there's I mean one thing in this the the this generation seems to be the amount of time it takes to play the game of golf. We touched on that very briefly. How do we go about addressing that and making that something that, again, the tr- the traditionalists are fine. Their four hours of a round of golf will, will be okay. But how do we make it more appealing? How do we get people there going, you can play for two hours. You can play three, four, five holes in 90 minutes. Well, I mean, let's put, let's put aside uh, pace of play because I think that's a completely different topic. I think there's a lot that clubs can do. I mean, let me, let me give you two, two examples of this. If I think of Saturday morning and Sunday morning, yep. and let, let's say it's, it's the golfing season, so we've got light. Yep. The 7, seven o'clock, 7.30 tea times are generally booked by those people who book them every week for the last X years, yep. are quite happy to be at the golf club all day. Yep. Well, why, why, why not take those prime tea times, say between 7 and 8 a.m., and say, we will have a separate list of members who are time poor. Yep. And they could be, they, they could be any age group, uh, but they are time poor. And we only have 7 till 7.30 or 7.30 to 8 tea times available for them. And let them go and play quickly at the speed they want to do. And then the group of us who've got all day to play or um, plenty of time, well, what does it matter if I go off at half past eight, nine o'clock? Yeah. It doesn't really matter to me because I'm going st- to play my game of golf and have some lunch anyway. Yep. You know, and I think the second piece of this is, you know, look at golf clubs. They are very rarely um, full all day long. Correct. There's, so why not have innovative solutions for the times when they're empty? There's a great example... Um, up here at Crail Golf Club, we have a big practice ground. You know, it's just a big area. Mm-hmm. But on a couple of days um, a month now, it shuts. And it shuts because they then retrofit it into a little par three course for kids. Brilliant. And the pros running children's golf. I think that's a fantastic way of thinking about it and, 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 and working on it. You know, I think those opportunities would be... I think clubs who do that will attract those people who are time poor, but who do want to play golf. And what, um, how do these shorter forms of golf fit in the professional game? Because we've seen the the golf sixes, which I attended last May, and I I think I remember having a conversation with you about it. It was one of the best sporting events I'd ever been to as a spectator. Felt it got a lot of undue criticism from golfers because it wasn't a golf tournament. But in my mind, they're maybe missing the point a little bit. The reality was it was a fantastic event. There was so few people walking around in golf clothing. There were kids running around everywhere. There was very little in terms of the traditional, I'm not going to say rules, but the traditional etiquette of the game. Absolutely fabulous. Is that something that we can make more of? Is that something that you think has a market for A, for professionals, and then B, for consumers? I absolutely do. I mean, we're, we're pushing nine-hole golf because it's more, more traditional. Not, not traditional, that's not what I mean. It's nine-hole golf is a way of creating um, a shorter form of the game. But I think golf sixes is... I'm not sure I'd be very good standing on the tee with all the music going on um, <laughs> around me. But you know, I think sometimes we forget, Hugh, that professional golf has two purposes. One is it, it defines the best players in the world at the biggest events. But also a lot of the year, it's, a, it's entertainment. Yes. 
um, people want to be entertained by the you know the best players in the world and, and see how good they are. Absolutely, and there are there are absolute times where a shorter form of the game, playing as a team, maybe playing different you know four balls or foursomes or. I think it would be much better than just regular 72-hole stroke play. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, golf six is exciting. This week I was at a, um, a conference, a meeting in, uh, uh, last week, sorry, and the Golf Foundation um, have worked with the European Tour to take the golf sixes ideas into schools. They, they're, they're taking it and they have a team of six and the kids all have different color um, uh, shirts that they wear so they play as a team which young mm-hmm. children like to do mm-hmm. um, over six holes and they play series of matches at different clubs Amazing. and generally on a Sunday afternoon and I think it's a brilliant idea yeah fantastic you know why, why can't clubs run a, a golf sixes event and, and do it uh, and, then, and then have a sort of you know a qualifying competitions and move it all forward yeah, people do like playing competitive golf with their friends. Yeah, and I think that for, for this six-hole format to work, it, there needs to be some link between... You, you, your club players need to be able to go away and play golf sixes events. It almost needs to be a golf six brand like there is the T20 cricket brand, yeah. where everyone who plays the game is also playing, or everyone who plays the traditional game is also able to play the golf six game. That, to me, is when you start to create more and more interest in it. If you have a one-off event that stands alone in a European tour calendar once a year, there needs to be more for that. That opportunity needs to exist for club players, I think, and elite-level amateurs, what called club professionals. The uh, it almost needs to become a brand brand in itself. I think Keith is showing all the energy to be able to drive those sorts of uh, sorts of initiatives, and oh, he's God, very yeah. inclusive. Yeah, um, and there's no, on, on no lack of great ideas from him. Yeah, and um, and if I remember correctly, the event that was played Centurion Club, isn't it? Yep. That they played, they actually played greensomes. Yes. I think they both they both, both drove, drive. and then they played alternate shots. Yep. That's a a form of golf as well that's not played that much now in club golf. Yep. Because everyone watches seventy two hole stroke play. Correct. But is 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 terrific. Um, so, yeah, we we. Um, we, we are very big supporters of the Golf Foundation, um, both financially and emotionally. And I thought this was a terrific event, and it's got my uh, little grey self thinking about uh, how we can uh, help them to make that a broader. Mm, I think there's a huge opportunity there. So, seamless link, you mentioned TV coverage. How, does, how do we improve live golf and TV? Everyone's exposed to, as you said, the 72-hole stroke play format, which is proper competitive golf, for want of a better phrase. How do we make TV golf more appealing? Uh, let, me, let me look at it Does from it need the, to be? Uh, the lens of the Open Championship first, because um, one of the uh, most uh, pressurised situations I've, I've felt was leading into Royal Troon in, uh, two years ago. In yeah, 15. I remember. Um, and one of the reasons I found it pressurised was because for the first time in our history, we were responsible for the, um, the TV production and actually making the, uh, the cameras. Now, we worked with some great people at European Tour Productions on that, but it was, it was our responsibility. When we were working on developing that, the director was sort of saying, Martin, what, you know, what, what, what do you want to show on TV of the Open? You know, what, what, what's your sort of vision for it? 
And I, I said to him, to me, the Open Championship, what it needs to show is, and what links golf is about, is it's a, I said it's a battle between, with the player and his caddy against a course and against nature. And we, they, they, they redid the, you know, they took the, the classical way of showing golf and tried to show that battle um, of the players, show the weather and how the weather impacts the players. And do you know what I found most, I mean, found loads of things rewarding is that that production in 2016 won the BAFTA for sport oh, wow. against the Olympics, the Paralympics, and the Six Nations. Now, our game has never won a BAFTA for sport. <laughs> um, and that was, you know, that trophy very proudly sits at uh, European Tour Productions and at Sky's headquarters. But I think we tried to show golf in a way that hadn't really been, um, a more enhanced way that hadn't been shown before. And it was that battle. And for younger people, we, we've introduced more and more technology. And, uh, you know, I've watched Formula One a lot. I enjoy Formula One. And I think they, I watch my sons enjoy Formula One around the, you know, all, all the sort of the technical stuff about yep. the cars. And I think we can do, I think that we definitely put some of that into the golf. You, you can't do it too much. It's all about, ba everything's about balance. You know, I, I feel very proud of that. And I think that's something we, we did the game a lot of good by being able to do that. And not many people knew, know that we won the BAFTA. And so yes. I, keep, I keep reminding people about it. Um, I think TV coverage of golf is, um, I think it just needs to be a bit faster pace you. See, it's, the, um, I, I agree. I, I'm not a huge consumer of golf these days. I'll watch the majors because of the majors. I'll watch events that I have some kind of relationship with, whether it's players I coach being in contention or whether it's golf courses I'm very familiar with. But outside of that, I'm going to struggle to be captivated by golf. And it doesn't feel to me like it's entertainment. Golf coverage to me should be, it's entertainment. It's it, it's it's something to fill my spare time and too often it just feels like a series of guys hitting golf balls yeah yeah how do you Let make it you entertaining a, well i think i think uh, i think it needs to be a faster pace i mean we, we, we said we'd sort of defer the pace of play discussion i think pace of play is a serious issue for us you'd be really Huge. surprised if i didn't say that yeah um and i think the professional game um, yes, the guys and the, late, the women are playing for their living. I completely get that. But they, have, they are the role models. Yeah. And they absolutely, the slower pace that they've played over the years has flowed into um, club golf. Mm -hmm. um, and, not for, and that's not good. But I think the other thing is, I, I, personally, I'd like to see them appear to enjoy themselves a little bit more. We've just hosted for the first time um, is a, a new, we founded a new event in Asia called the Women's Amateur Asia Pacific. Um, so it's an elite um, amateur event. Um, we played it at Singapore, in Sentosa Golf Club in Singapore. The winner was a young girl from Thailand who turned 15 in the week. Mm -hmm. um, so she was 14 when she turned up on the Monday for practice. She was good enough to win in a playoff um, against three others and then played the following week in the LPGA event and finished eighth at 15 wow. years of age. Four shots behind, oh, eight shots behind um, Michelle Wee. Yeah. 
But what's lovely, this young girl, every time she hit the ball, she was smiling. Mm. And she was chatting to her caddy. And, cl- and, and she wasn't the only one of the young girls. And clearly enjoying it. And when I watch LPGA golf, and uh, you know, I'd, in- I'd encourage you to watch a bit more of that, that, that they, are, they appear to be enjoying it more. They're smiling. Um, God, they're deeply competitive. But it's, it's engaging. And I, I watch this young girl play a lot of... I walked around the course and watched her play because I really enjoyed watching it. Do you think the and players are aware that they're entertainers? Do you think the players are aware that there's some kind of onus on them to, to be... I mean, they're the centre of attention, but do they think they know they have, they have an obligation to be a little bit entertaining? Maybe they don't. I think, I think some of them, I think some of them do, but the pressures maybe get get to them, and they get very into you know the um, um, psychologist training, mm. um, and that is a way of putting up a wall to everything that's going on around them. Yeah, um, and and that sort of maybe stops it. But you know, sport. Let me push it back to you. I mean, forget about it, it was a. Um, a um, a major, but if I look about the two opens that I've been responsible for, we've had two incredibly exciting finishes. Yeah. With Stenson against Mickelson at Troon mm. and Kucher against Spieth. Now, there were, there were others all around competing in there, but when golf gets head-to-head and gladiatorial, then it becomes a completely different spectacle that is immensely engaging. Yes. And I think that's kind of why we like the Ryder Cup and we like the Solheim Cup because it is, it is engaging. Um, you know, and I think that's where Tiger, Tiger is, to me, he, 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 people want to watch him not because he is just fantastic and arguably the best athlete of his generation, forget about the best golfer, um, but he shows that emotion. Um, you know, in his heyday with lots of the, the fist pumps and the, all, that, all, all those sorts of things he used to do. But even last week when I was watching him with, you know, big smiles and putts went in and great shots were hit. And yeah, yeah sometimes he gets deadly serious because he's fighting hard. Um, and I think that's why people love watching him. And it's, um, it, it's, he's one of the few golfers through history that is able to captivate an audience without needing to be competing against someone else. Just watching Tiger yeah. play. I'm, I, I don't watch an awful lot of TV golf, but I'm going to watch Tiger. It's interesting. Yeah. Two or three of the, of the sort of 20-something, early 30-something guys I coach who never watch TV golf, they watch Tiger's comeback. They sat and watched the event at Albany from start to finish because Tiger was playing. And these yeah. are... European Tour professionals who've won tournaments, they never watch golf until Tiger's there. And there's something we have to understand why, and I think the whole game needs to understand why. And it is, as I, as I, as I feel, one, that he is just a wonderful sportsman, but two, full of emotion. You get the whole... Um, you're, you're, you're there for the ride when you watch Tiger. Yeah. And he has this remarkable nice. ability to draw everyone in. Yeah. Um, but I, I'd like to see the guys, I'd like to see them in, enjoy themselves more because I think it would be engaging. And as I said, you know, I, you, you watch the LPGA um, and you do see that a bit more. And um, that's, what, that's when it's entertainment. I think part of the problem here, Martin, is that 
if you speak to a lot of the guys who are playing golf for a living, I'm not sure many of them actually enjoy it. Which is a real shame. Isn't it? And I don't know why, I don't know how they've come to that position. I don't, I don't know how their relationship with the game has soured to the extent that they don't actually enjoy being out there competing. Yeah, I, I suppose I find that difficult, Hugh, because I got asked the other day, you know, is there too much pressure on the top, uh, top golfers to perform? And I go, no. I said, because if you're a top sportsman, it's no different to being a top um, executive a in a commercial yeah. company. You know, that's life. You, you've yes. chosen that way of life and you have pressure um, and, and enjoy it. And, and, and ultimately, that, the, re- the reason they, there is an expectation on them to perform is because they have historically shown that they can perform. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it's very... I, 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 I'm sort of saddened by that comment, really, that, that, that they're not enjoying it. I'm not, saying it's a, it's not, I'm not saying that it's the majority, but I would definitely say there was a decent percentage out there who do not enjoy the day-to-day grind of playing tournament golf. Yeah. I mean, we could have a, another entire discussion about why that would be the case, but it's it's certainly reflected in the in the on-screen personas of these of these characters. Do you know the other side of it is I, I've had the pleasure in the last year of playing with Sandy Lyle a few times, hmm. and you know Sandy's a, a couple of years older than me. I think he turned sixty this year, and I tell you what, he plays golf with a smile on his face, and he loves playing different shots and you know i think that's a great i think that's a a great role model for some of the younger guys but you know when you're 60 you can still have a lot of fun because you are good at it yeah absolutely well i mean again he would sandy still would put an awful lot of the younger guys to shame still can play very well maybe not up to the standard of martin slumbers though (laughs) i still lose every time (laughs) you need to take more strokes (laughs) <laughs> it's a very very easy negotiation with your with your business background you should be able to negotiate that very easily yeah that trouble is my ego gets in the way here yeah yes the old male ego <laughs> martin i think i think we've taken more than enough time uh from you today thank you so much for for agreeing to appear on the show and being so honest and open with your opinions it's uh Personally, I find it fascinating that the RNA, which has historically been viewed as this very, very traditional organisation, is now actually at the forefront of modernising the game. It's it's leading the march towards, I don't know, what do we call it, Golf 2.0? I don't know. Yeah. But And it, it's very encouraging to hear that so much is being done to grow the game. I hope that, uh, I wish you, A, I wish you the very best of luck and B, hope that you're able to carry this on for, for as, long as, you're, uh, as, as long as you're there. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity to chat and um, I'll see you, um, see you soon. I look forward to it, Martin. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye, Bye. you. Bye-bye.